Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of your kindness to us and our need to come together like this and call out to you in song and in prayer, O Lord, show us who you are. We need, we need to know, we need to know you. We need to recognize your love for us. We need to be committed to your sufficiency for all the things that we need. We need to rehearse your salvation to us. We need to recognize the greatness of our rescue of being set free from those sins that have destined us to destruction. But yet, Lord, you rescued us in spite of ourselves. And by your grace and mercy have brought us into your amazing kingdom of light. And so, Lord, we pray now as we turn our attention to the study of your word that our hearts would be gripped in a fresh way with the the reality of our rescue. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever been rescued from a really rough situation that you knew for sure God was the one who was responsible for your rescue? When I was 17 at the, uh, in between grade 12 and grade 13, had 13 back in those days, it wasn't a victory lap, it was required. A friend of mine and myself decided that uh, since we were coming into the last year of high school, we needed to, to see the world a little bit. So we, we decided that we would take the summer and tour Europe for eight weeks. Back in the day, people did that. You got a backpack, hippies with long hair, and um, traveled around. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, but that's what we did. So. To sort of set the date for you, I was 17 and the historic things that were going on at the time, President Richard Nixon was neck deep in Watergate. Many of you don't even know what that is, I presume. And the Cold War between the the West and the Soviet Union was raging and it was that previous year that Canada had proven its supremacy in hockey and We won the Summit Series, and so I got a backpack that was virtually a Canadian flag. The whole thing was was red, white, and had a leaf on it. It was just, it was a Canadian flag, so I was a walking advertisement for the greatest country in the world. The Europeans didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that, but but we did receive uh, good hospitality. Well, as you can imagine, we, we saw many countries, and... Um, it was in the day when a plane ticket, a return plane ticket, cost about $265, if you can imagine, $150 for a URL pass for eight weeks. You live on, uh, I was hoping hot dogs, but they didn't have that in Europe. Uh, so it was bratwurst, and, and you know, I was like, whoa, that's a weird transition for me. And, and uh, you buy a tomato and a, a, a dinner roll, and that's, that's how you live. And that's what we did in $2 a night hostels. And 
you can make it work on, on very little money. Well, you, normally you don't want, when you're a high school kid, you don't want the summer to end, but I can assure you that by the time eight weeks rolled around, I was so homesick, I, I, couldn't, I, I needed my mother's cooking, I, I really hadn't been away from home very much, and, and uh, so I was just dying to get home. And so we arrived back at the airport in Ostend, Belgium. I'll never forget the place. It's, a, it's a, not a place that most people know of. And by the way, if you're Belgian, please do not be offended at anything that I have to say. Uh, just understand the context. We arrived back at Ostend, Belgium in the airport uh, to redeem our tickets to fly home. And the ticket taker on the other side said, I have some bad news for you. He said, oh, what, what, what is that? Well, you're not going home on this ticket. And I said, what do you mean? Well, because the airline has gone bankrupt. Now, at 17, super homesick, sick of bratwurst in Ostend, Belgium, this was the worst news I'd ever heard in my entire life. Now, I know most people can just sort of grab their wallet, dig in, take out a credit card, and oh, oh well, buy a, a, a one-way ticket back to Toronto, but I wasn't that guy. I had scraped together my virtual life savings that, that, that I had uh, gathered cleaning factory toilets after high school, after school every night, and I didn't have, I had 30 US dollars left in my pocket. And I also wasn't the kind of person who would just call home and ask dad and mom to get me out of a fix. Because we didn't have a lot of money back in those days. Money didn't grow on trees back in the 70s. I know it does now, but it didn't grow on trees back then. And, um, and so here I am strand, stranded. And all I could think of is, oh, God, rescue me. I, I got to get out of Europe. You've got to get me home. And so for several days, back and forth from the $2 hostel, I would come to the airport and beg the, just the general airport, please get me home, <laughs> you know? And so um, the third day I came back, and um, each day, of course, when you leave the hostel, they would, they would lock up for the day, and you couldn't go back until around supper time. That's the way it worked. So I went to the airport and begged them again, and first, first well, I know why, but there was a woman at, at the ticket taker who said, um, look it, the company's gone bankrupt, but it has one plane flying back to North America, and that plane is going to Dallas, Texas. That's nowhere near Toronto. I said, I'll take it. That's good enough for me. If, if I can get onto the continent, I can get back to Toronto. I can't swim the Atlantic, but I can make my way back from Dallas to Toronto. Okay, so she said, but here's two tickets, but you've got to be on the plane in two hours. Now, I was at the airport. In my mind, I'm like, the hostel is closed and locked up. My pack is in there. I don't know where my buddy is. I ran back to the hostel, praying all the way. God, help me. Please help me. Lord, help me. I'd been crying every night to the Lord. Help me get home. Please help me get home. Running back, I didn't know what was going to happen when I got to the hostel, but I knew I'd called out to the Lord. And I, got, and I, I ran up to the hostel, and the door was wide open. It wasn't even shut. It wasn't, it wasn't that I could turn the handle open. The door was literally wide open. I was like, what? Ran in. Nobody was around. It was totally vacant. It was, and, and I ran in, grabbed my backpack, grabbed my buddy's backpack, and I thought, now I just need to find him. 
So I ran with the both packs down to the beach, and there he was playing soccer while I was trying to get us home. <laughs> anyway, I found him, gave him the pack. We raced to the airport. We get, I look at the ticket just before I'm going to get on the plane, and I realize it's an expired ticket. The ticket to Dallas is, is already done. It's a done deal. And I, I how is this going to work? But anyway, God had taken us this far. I handed him the ticket, and I guess it was like, God's smugglers, you know, Bible smugglers, they didn't, they didn't seem to notice that the ticket was expired. And um, said, oh, by the way, she said, you're going to Dallas, Texas, but um, there's a fuel stop at Bangor, Maine. You're not supposed to get off, but you might, you might want to get off because it's closer to Toronto. So we got on the plane, got off at the fuel stop in Bangor, Maine. Now what? Well, there were two other guys who were older than me. I was 17. My buddy was, was also 17. They, we, we couldn't rent a car. We were too young. So we got these two guys to rent a car with us. They were from Buffalo. We were from Guelph. Only problem is they rented a stick shift and they couldn't drive a stick shift. <laughs> but I could drive a stick shift. So I won't tell you how we got home, but something like, something like an underage guy got us home. But anyway... We, dropped, we got dropped off at the 401 and Highway 6, hitchhiked home, and I got home with one U.S. dollar after I settled up the account. God rescued me. And I can tell you, at 17, that was a, a landmark moment in my life with God and really learning to trust Him. That call on the Lord. Now, he, He's not always going to do that. I know I've learned over these years that God has a different agenda than I have, but He, he heard my despairing cry and he rescued me out of Austin, Belgium. And I can tell you one thing. When you're rescued out of something like that, you're in no hurry to go back. So I, like I said, I don't want anyone to feel offended if you're from Belgium. But I had no desire to go back to Belgium anytime soon. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Colossians. And if we know anything about their history, they were, in some cases, were very much under fire. They, men, most of them were brand new converts. And they had hoped for something better when they came to know Christ. But life hadn't really changed that much for them. They were, in fact, it was worse for, in the case of most of them. They were now under persecution, under rejection, all of that. And they were crying out, I'm sure, on a regular basis, oh God, help us. I, I, thought, I thought this would be better than that. And so Paul, as he regularly did, writes back to a church, a fresh, brand new church that is in, in danger of falling back or slipping back or going back to their old ways to rescue themselves and reminds them of the great rescue that they have received. If you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior, you have been rescued from the worst possible life outcome. Eternity in hell. And Paul in verse 13 and 14 in particular, which sets the pace for the, this part of, of his teaching, points out this glorious, in fact, start at verse 12, this glorious rescue giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom 
of the son he loves or the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul sets before them a reminder in spite of all the difficulty that's going on around them, you have received the greatest rescue of all time, the great gospel escape. You have been taken out of a harsh imprisonment to the wasted life of sin that you previously lived where violence ruled in your life and you have been repatriated into the kingdom of the light of Jesus Christ where you qualify for an inheritance that is now kept for you in heaven don't go back trust in the Lord call on him our salvation beloved is a rescue operation and I hope this morning as we dig into this text that you will once again be encouraged by the, the magnitude of your rescue and what God has done for you. And Paul sets it up as a prayer. This is a, a wonderful prayer. I don't know if you're like me, but I get into ruts in prayer. I just keep, I'll start praying for the same thing, the same order. Pray for the kids in the exact order. Sometimes I think, I got to switch it around. I can't always pray for the same kid first. But you get into, these, get into this routine of how you pray. And, and the scriptures has some wonderful prayers. And, and we need to learn how to pray these prayers. I prayed this pray, prayer this morning as I woke up laying in bed not wanting to get up because that's what I'm like. I like to take a slow run at the day. I was praying for you, praying for myself, praying this prayer. And I had an advantage over you because I'd studied this. And um, this is a glorious prayer to be praying. And we should be praying this all the time. This is one of those kinds of prayers. So note this, he says, he starts out in verse 9, for this reason, what's the reason? Back at verse 4, your faith in Christ Jesus. For this reason, the reason that you've been rescued, that you've been saved, your faith in Christ Jesus. Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God, what? To fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The gospels come to you and it requires the utmost in prayerful and practical attention. This is about taking your salvation seriously. I, my, heart, my heart's prayer for you this morning is that you all who, who belong to Christ would take your salvation seriously. And if you don't know Christ, that you would receive him, respond to him, would, would be rescued from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, the domination of darkness and sin that's destroying your life and, and be released and rescued by Christ and the salvation that he brings. So how do we take our salvation seriously? The gospel that's come to us. We pray for each other that God will keep filling you with the knowledge of his will. Praying for each other. Praying for yourself. Praying for your family. That you might have confidence that God's will is the pinnacle of wisdom and understanding in your home and in your life. And I know that you're thinking, it is. Of course it is. Of course the wisdom and understanding of God is the pinnacle. Uh, the will of God is the pinnacle of, of life for me and home, at home and, and, and workplace and wherever. Yes, we say that. But is it instinctively ours? When things go awry... And they do on a regular basis. 
Do we always believe that the will of God is the pinnacle of wisdom and understanding for what we ought to do in our life? Or do we race off to other alternatives? There's some um, troubling statistics that are afoot among us. I read, was reading an article in Pew Research. It said four years old, 2020, and it's U.S. statistics. It's hard to, to dig up much that's happening in Canada. But there's a serious crisis in current Christianity, and I'm sure you all know that. With respect to the percentage of what's happening in terms of Christian influence in America. In 1972, 90% of Americans declared that they were Christian. 90% of, of America. By the year 2007, it was down to 78%. In 2020, 64%. At the present rate of decline of Christian influence in America, it is estimated that in 2017, perhaps less than 40% of America will be declare, declare itself Christian. In 100 years, from 90% to 40%. And maybe that won't be accurate at all. Christianity, Christian influence, whatever we're doing or not doing, is losing ground in North America and at a more rapid pace in Canada. In fact, the same, uh, that same study pointed out that presently 33% of kids raised in Christian homes disaffiliate with Christianity before the age of 30. One in three of our kids raised in our families, in our churches, are disaffiliating with Christianity before the age of 30, presently. In fact, the study went on to make this summary statement, there is no demographic data to project a Christian revival in America. Now, these things can be changed. In fact, the fastest growth group in our continent are the nuns, the when asked, what is your religion, they say, none, have no religion. We're not convinced, I think, as much as we admit or claim that we believe the will of God is the pinnacle of wisdom and understanding, I'm pretty convinced that we're not convinced of the sufficiency of Christ in all of our things. When we're asked, when we need something, What's the first thing we do? You know, I, I was, I'm not purporting to be a, a spiritual giant when I was 17. I, I cried out to God because I didn't have any money. I didn't have the alternative to grab a credit card or get a line of credit. Oh God, help me. Oh God, rescue me. I was totally dependent on God. We've We've created so much in our lives, we've gathered around ourselves so much in our lives that, that we can almost live without him. You know, when we need something, where do we go first? When we need something in terms of a, having an emotional breakdown or emotional meltdown in our lives, what's the first thing we do is we think, well, we should run to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. 
rather than to the Lord. I'm not, by the way, suggesting that these professions are not needed or not necessary. I'm just saying, what's our first instinct as followers of Jesus Christ? When we get in a financial bind, what's the first thing? Well, let's just get a line of credit. Well, what about asking God? When we have a health crisis, well, just call the doctor. What about crying out to the Lord? The great physician. Does, does, that, does that instinctively come to us first, or is it so far down the line? When, when we're considering how we ought to better ourselves in our lifestyle, do we, do we Google um, self-help books, or do we grab our Bible? David Garland, in his commentary, uh, states this, wisdom that excludes Christ or makes him subordinate is counterfeit. Why would you choose psychology over scripture? Why would you choose psychiatrist over Christian counseling? Why would you highly respect secular wisdom? Did Psalm 1 fall out of our Bibles along the way? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is what? Is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Or she. How are you, how am I modeling before my kids, before my grandkids, before the kids in the church, before my neighbors? How am I modeling that I believe Christ is sufficient and supreme over all things? Is it any wonder that one-third of our kids are disaffiliating with Christianity before 30? We're telling them that there's nothing here to see. So Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to ask God. You need to pray, verse 10. And we pray this in order that, why? In order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every good way. And then he sets out four participles, four ways that we can actually live lives worthy of the Lord. Live lives worthy of the cost of our salvation. Worthy of the, the glory of our rescue. Worthy of what Christ has done for you. We must literally put distance every day between the kingdom of darkness and its ways not the people who are living in darkness, but the kingdom of darkness and its ways. We must distance ourselves from that every day, put distance, and, and live glorious lives in the realm of the kingdom of light, and life, and love that Christ has set up for us. Now, how are we to do that? First of all, bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. It's as if Paul gives us a knock on the head and says, don't just sit there, do something. Bearing fruit, what does that mean, bearing fruit? Bearing fruit in every good 
work. Listen, beloved, we're not saved by good works, but saved people bear fruit in every good work. Do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. It's been said that we've become a culture of watchers. We watch everything. Tonight we're going to watch football. We should probably all be playing football. But tonight we'll watch football. We watch TV. I could have never imagined back as a kid in high school being able to have a TV in my pocket. Like that's unbelievable. I could just take it out and look at things. We're watching, watching, all the time watching. We, we, we watch, we, have, we, we go to dating services and, and, and catalog, scroll through people. Like we're, we're in a Sears catalog. I think maybe that one. But we never date anybody. We just, just scroll through people. It's a dating service, but nobody ever dates. Because we're watchers. We're always looking for something better. We are called to bear fruit in every good work. In our church in Oshawa, we had established a kind of a healthy weekly diet cycle. You know, everybody's into physical health and working out and, and, and getting, getting healthy. Don't you think Christians ought to specialize in spiritual health? We should, we, should, we should specialize in spiritual health. And so we established a healthy regimen for those who call themselves Christians at, at our church in Oshawa. And, and it's called our 111 principle. And, and, and it, what it, it, it basically unfolds that on, on any given week, you should participate in one worship event, you should participate in one growth small community event, and you should serve in some area once a week. We consider that a healthy, healthy cycle for building up spiritual life. Bearing fruit in every good work. Doing something. Now I know you've been working here at West Highland on adding a fourth to that. It's very similar, but worship, community, um, service, and outreach. That's, that's a healthy balance, a healthy diet of what bearing fruit would look like. But he also says in growing... In the knowledge of God, growing in the knowledge of God. To welcome the gospel is to know God. To know God is to do his will. And to do his will is to know more and more of God, as uh, commentator Martin says. A growing in the knowledge of God, knowing who God is. We, um, if we are going to live a life that pleases God and that is worthy of of the great rescue that we have received, then we need to know God. I can't tell you the number of times over pastoral years where people will come in and talk to me in, in my study and they will say, I, I, or I've summoned them in or whatever and because they're living a life that is not worthy of the gospel. And they will invariably say to me, God is okay with what I'm doing because I feel good about it. And the, thing, the very thing they're doing is categorically opposed to who God is. More and more Christians are choosing to know less and less about God and seeking to live their lives according to their feelings. Paul says to us in his prayer, we need to grow in God knowledge. 
because we need to know who God is that we might live a life worthy of him and please him. The downfall of Israel was that they didn't want God as their king. They wanted to have a king like everybody else around them. But the problem with that is everybody else around them who had kings also wanted kings because they didn't want God to be their king. And so Israel was following the ways of the people around them who were living in darkness. And you know why people didn't want or wanted kings and not God? Because they want to be their own king. And when you decide to live by your feelings instead of by your faith in the word of God and who God is, you're choosing to have yourself as king and rescuer and supreme and not Christ. He goes on and then says, and that you might be fully strengthened, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience operating fully in the power of God, it be, being able to endure difficult situations and, and patient with difficult people because God's got this. Now, I know I led off with a story of instantaneous answer of God. Well, it was a three-day delay, but it, and it felt like forever for me at that age, but, but it was a pretty instantaneous response from God. But you and I both know that much of our lives is not an instantaneous change that we hope God will bring about. And it, as it was in this fledgling church, it can be in our lives as well, where we start to wonder, can God really take care of me? Can God really take care of the situation? Is God really supreme? Is God really sufficient? Is God really powerful? And we may start to look at other out for other things that might help us. And so he prays that believers might have endurance. Living in this great rescue of salvation might have endurance in difficult situations and with difficult people. You got any difficult people in your life? They can cause you to sin if you're not careful. And so, um, again, I wish I had $5 for everyone who said to me, well, what God is asking of me in his word is too hard for me. I would say, really? And, and their assumption is, and I thought somewhere in the Bible or something that says that God won't give you anything that's too hard for you. Well, that's a poor rendition of Corinthians. And I always look at them and say, God always gives me something that's too hard for me. <laughs> Living the Christian life is too hard for me. Everything I do is too hard for me. Everything you do is too hard for you. Getting up this morning and coming here to preach is too hard for me. As I sat down there in the first service and in the second service, I, I didn't come up onto the platform without calling out to the Lord, oh God, help me. Like, save me. You didn't, couldn't hear me, but, I, but that's how I'm screaming inside, oh God, help me. You, you've got to help me and save me, enable me. 
because everything's too hard for me. But what Paul says here is that you have received, you're strengthened with all power because when you came to know Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. The same, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead came to reside in you when you were repatriated into the kingdom of the Son he loves. All the power of the Godhead is available to you. There's nothing too hard for him. But everything's too hard for us. And what we're really saying most of the time is, okay, I understand the theology in, in you know, God will enable me, but, okay, so it's not too hard, but it's too, de it's too dependent. Or, or it's not too hard, but it's too painful, Lord. Okay, it's not too hard, but it's too sacrificial. Lord, you're going to require sacrifice from me. You're going to require pain from me. You're going to require dependency. And he answers back, yes, exactly. I rescued you out of self-dependence that you might now live in the kingdom of dependence on me. And then he says um, that you might give thanks to the Father and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Deepening your joy for having hit the spiritual jackpot. You have an inheritance in heaven. Life is difficult here. And regularly nothing changes for long periods of time as you cry out to the Lord. And there's every possibility that you might lose your grip on joy. Paul says, pray for each other. Pray for yourself that you will not lose your grip on joy. Because negativity and dissatisfaction is completely incompatible with, with the Christian reality. Paul surrounds this um, urgency with rescue and inheritance and glory and salvation and all the amazing things that we have in Christ If you really get it, the rescue that you've received, you will gravitate to joy and deep thankfulness over any tough season. As opposed to grumbling and complaining and criticizing and being miserable and negative and unhappy in front of your kids and your grandkids and the people that you work with and wonder why they're disassociating with Christianity. He sums it all up for verse 19 because you need to pray that you will have Christ-driven lives that will rescue your family from affiliating with the realm of secular darkness because he's rescued us from that mess. You know, the lineup forms quickly to be rescued from hell. But you know what the real lineup is? It's to be rescued from here. To be rescued from myself, to be rescued from other attractions. It's the journey of salvation. To learn to be rescued from other attractions that would steal our hearts away from sufficiency in Christ. 
because we've been redeemed, in whom we have redemption. Redeemed means you've been bought out of a slave market of sinfulness and slavery to Satan and purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf and rescued and placed into his kingdom of freedom and light and life and love. And you've been forgiven of every sin you've ever committed, are committing, and ever will commit. And so, the writer here of the letter to Colossians urges God's people to distance yourself from the kingdom of darkness. You've been purchased and rescued into a better kingdom. And to prevent, to, to, to resist a return to sinfulness that loads you back with guilt again. Guilt that's been lifted from you. Why go back there? To guilt and insecurity and destruction. Leave worldly pursuits that are gateways to sin. Paul's overall charge and mine is the same. Pray for each other. Pray for each other about these things. Our Father, we come to this text with humility, recognizing that unless you help us and rescue us, O oh Lord, from ourselves and from our tendency to find sufficiencies in other things, I pray, O oh Lord, we will um, take away from this time together with you a fresh, a fresh thanksgiving and a settled and deepened joy that being repatriated into the kingdom of your life and light and love is superior to anything that this world has to offer. And that we might continue, oh God, to pray for one another to embrace this. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have noticed that the candle is lit here today, which you know means that someone came to know Christ this week. And so we rejoice that someone was rescued uh, from the Alpha program this week. And we need to be in prayer for that person because here's the danger. We need to secure our rescue. The danger is that when you first come to know Christ, you thought it might be more different than it was and things would change quicker and you would be released sooner than you are. The danger with being a Christian over the long haul is that we've forgotten how bad it was before we were followers of Christ. And we've lost touch with how glorious it is to be a follower of Christ. So as you think through this week and pray, pray about the glory of the rescue of your salvation, that you have been delivered 
out of the dominion and domination of darkness with its vicious way of living and repatriated into the kingdom of his marvelous light and love and life. And pray about it. Pray, pray, pray that you will live out that rescue each day of your life. Father, thank you so much. We love you. We know you love us. We are grateful, O oh God, for our deliverance. We are grateful, O oh God, for our rescue. We are grateful for the great salvation escape that enables us to live lives worthy of you, pleasing the Lord in every way. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.